0: Hello and welcome to the September 1st week of edition of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with the right on time Teos Abedia. Hey Teos, (laughs) how are you feeling today?
1: I'm a little tired. I had an impromptu work session, but in addition to that, I just got here from uh, PAX. drove late last night home from PAX West in beautiful Seattle. And it was a heck of a convention, uh, really fascinating. So one thing is, uh, you know, post-pandemic, trying to grow, I think trying to see whether they're gonna grow the way Gen Con did and mm-hmm. not, quote unquote, grow the way Origins said they did. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, it was hard to assess because the convention now has a brand new summit center that was built by the city in collaboration with PAX. It's a beautiful wow. building. But, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who was kind of mentioning how PAX is the kind of convention that PAX West has felt like every little nook and cranny had something. And now because of this big building, it's more like there's a lot of empty space and the maps were not quite right and there were a few things that were kind of going on. But I went to a fantastic Acquisitions Incorporated game that leads into the new season. And then I um, got to be one of the main people organizing, the D&D games that were taking place there through Baldman Games. Reppin. And um, yep. it was amazing. We got just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people playing D&D, having an absolute blast. Um, you know, and and Pax has always been at the forefront of demographics. So I remember in like 2000, I don't even know, something early, right, during the 4E days. Um, you would see so many young people playing, coming to play D&D, so many couples coming to play D&D. And now at PAX, it's to the point where you cannot make any guess whatsoever about a group of people that comes up who might be the DM, who might have experience, like a little kid with the dad. And I say, can I interest you guys in a demo of Dungeons & Dragons? And the dad says, yes, my son has really wanted me to try this for some time. Because the kid had been to some camp, you know, (laughs) and just you name it. I mean, you just could you could not ever pick the DM out of a group uh, because there was such a wide diversity of players there. And it was fantastic to see tons of people playing D&D for the very first time. So it was great. Hats out to all the DMs and collaborators that I worked with there. It was amazing. Really
0: cool. And now you get to come now. now You get to come here and in a stupor do the (laughs) podcast. Well, Teos, luckily, I've got I've got some energy today. I'm ready. I'll carry you through this if necessary. Uh, by the end, I will be like flat on my back, and you'll be going strong, but that's okay. We will get there, because this is my favorite time of the year, fall, S- September, mm-hmm. beginning of summer, school's back. Temperatures are starting to cool here in, in mm-hmm. Western New York, at least, generally, and it feels good, and, and uh, I'm energized, so... Let's jump right into this with our listener corner, starting with Lazael via Twitter, who says, listening to episode 154, I feel like the DMs Guild is suffering from the same issue that Drive-Thru RPG has, which is there are so many more new items being dropped daily that you can't determine what would be useful and what would never see the table. And this is so very true, and it leads to a few questions The top of mind for me is how can Wizards of the Coast turn their third-party license and their reach and their infrastructure into a win-win-win situation Mm -hmm. for themselves, for third-party publishers, and for the fans, for the players? And we talked about this before with Wizards can't publish everything that people want. so third-party publishers are there to fill that void. Uh, And so it feels like this comes back to that. It comes back to how can we let everyone create content, but still have content accessible in a way that doesn't just overwhelm people. And I did uh, for Dragon Plus a column for a couple of years called the best of the DMs Guild. And that was sort of one of the two reasons I wanted to do it was to say, hey, here is some content that you might be interested in. Let me curate it for you a bit. Um, Incidentally, I also wanted to make it a design column. Like, Mm -hmm. look at what this product does design-wise. This is great about it. This could probably use a little work. Here's a pitfall that this product fell into. But I had to strip away any sort of negativity uh, from my Mm -hmm. column. So it, it turned, you know, I had to keep, focus on the positive constantly, but it was still, it was fun to do. And I felt like it was serving both the fans and the the players. And Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we need that, whether it's community driven or third party driven or wizards driven, uh, it needs to be there. And that leads to further questions like what will the DMS guild look like next year and in two years and in 10 years, what will, D&D Beyond look like? What will the virtual tabletop landscape, in terms of a sales vehicle, look like? And how much content will it be overwhelming? Will it be curated? Will it will will there be categories? How will all of that work? And it's it's something that's constantly uh, on my mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the one answer that I would give to to anyone pondering this question of of what what it should look like is there is a whole laundry list of things that DM's Guild publishers have been asking for for a very long time. And they've never been granted, uh, the vast majority of them. Yet the place did become successful because it it became a a, a go-to place for a while. So it was, people would go there, would see things, would buy things. But none of those changes were ever made, none of those requests that would allow a publisher to easily have their products be found. Um, mm-hmm. and, and obviously publishers a lot of times care about things like can you find all of my products, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you find everything that I've done? Um, if you're looking for a particular subject, will you find the product that I made for that subject? And the interface and all of these other issues around the DMs Guild, they don't really allow for that. And when it's a trapped location where you can only publish a product there or publish the product, a product that you publish there cannot be anywhere else, that is a huge limit, right? It's why we see the Keith Bakers of the world, say, and the Empty Blacks say, I'm no longer be, going to be on the DMs Guild because it financially doesn't make sense if you can be large enough to have successful crowdfunding, um, which actually is a surprisingly low bar. You know, there are a lot of people that can break out. It's not easy by any means, but it's possible. And so I, I think looking to the future, I would love to see the exclusivity of the DMs Guild drop away. And I would want to see these features that have been requested for a long time come back in. The last thing I might think is something that can bring and draw attention and help to galvanize, but it has to be done carefully. I think the, the, the Adept products and for a while even Adventures League were sort of a, hey, look, here's a great example of how good it can be. But if it's too good or it has such early access, that it overwhelms the things that would be official, then it shuts down people from publishing, right? I remember Eric Mengi and I were going to write a a as we a, just when it came out, um, Waterdeep. We were thinking to ourselves, oh wow, you know, there's this tavern. Let's write a guide to writing a tavern. So we start doing the work, and just a few days later, out comes the fully written adept product on taverns, which was great. So no loss to the world, you know, because it was really a fantastic product that I love. But that inside track could shut down a creator. So there's so many aspects of this I could talk about, but but I I think that my hope is that D and D will think about these things, right? Think about what it is that creates a vibrant community, because it, it's not easy. It doesn't just happen on its own, and 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 if you just leave it to its own devices, then you'll get what you're getting on the DMs Guild, where it does start to get, uh, it, it loses its value, it loses its capability of serving both the audience and the publishers. Mm-hmm.
0: So thank you for that question, uh, Lazael. And we had a question come in from Magus via our Patreon Discord less than an hour ago. And the question is this, is there a DD book or supplement that contains sort of examples of rules for everything else? Mm. Uh, when starting to DM, I would have been totally lost if I hadn't watched Critical Role. I'm talking about things that come up in basically every adventure, like making a camp, foraging for food, keeping watch, gambling searching a corpse or a room for clues using those blank, blank tools you are proficient at Uh, how I know you can do it in in a myriad ways. But I would love an official book with examples on how you can do this sort of thing to make it more interesting and fun for everyone, especially if they would list multiple ways of handling the same thing. Since I doubt they will ever make such a book, I assume they being wizards. Is there an unofficial one? Mm. And since this question just came in, I didn't have a chance to like think back or go through the DM's Guild or go through places to look for a book like that. And many times there are pieces of those things scattered throughout, as the question says. I skipped out that part, but the question says, I'm sure there are pieces of this everywhere. Uh, but the question actually comes back to game design and the design of the game that you're playing. Because all of these things can be fun, they can be interesting, but they can also not be fun and not be interesting. And unless the game incorporates these rules into its overall design, then it's problematic to just add your own rules for it. Mm -hmm. So if you want things like making a camp or foraging for food to be fun, and interesting and important, then you have to ask yourself: what are the game mechanical or narrative consequences for success or failure of those things? And how do those consequences interact with your gameplay mm-hmm. based on the game design? So, take for example, foraging for food. You're running an adventure, you you rest for the evening, you forage for food. What are the consequences if you succeed? What are the consequences if you fail? Unless that is built into the game mechanics itself, it, it's hard to, to make it work. With fate, the rules uh, would support that because you could say, oh, you succeeded at foraging for food. You gained the, uh, you gained the aspect well-fed. Mm-hmm. Oh, you failed. You gained the aspect gnawing hunger. And then those things, those aspects are already part of the game. With D&D, you could do that, but again, what are the consequences? Of what are the failures? There's no good mechanic for that. Well, you could say, well, exhaustion is a great mechanic for that, and it's probably in the rules already where it says if you don't get enough sleep or if you don't get enough food, you gain a level of exhaustion. But that's that can be way, way rough for certain players, for certain characters, for certain character classes that rely on different rules. So tacking on something can be fun, but it's, it's hard unless it's built right in. I've got
1: some thoughts on this. One is that when I think of this question, I say to myself, yeah, D&D did that. It's called Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Um, and that's, I'm not being silly. I mean, it has rules on sleep. It has rules on tool proficiencies. You know, it it has a lot of these types of activities. It has downtime rules on gambling. A lot of the things that are mentioned in this question are in Xanathars, and some of them have been more successful than others. Um, you know, I really don't see people using the tying knots uh, information here or the tool proficiencies, despite the fact that they're a cool idea. They don't see a whole lot of play, and even sleep. I think not enough people are using that to begin with, to where you hear it mentioned often and and you don't necessarily think about it Uh, things like downtime you do see right and and that has made an impact on the game so i think that maybe when you look at xanathars and then you look at tasha's tasha's backed off some of these sort of optional systems because they probably had not proven to be as popular as the rest of the things in xanathars um so i think it's tough you know are there other sources like this yeah there totally are I've seen a number of them, I couldn't name them, <laughs> because right. honestly, I find that they run into the issues that you're talking about, Sean, which is the mechanical use of these things sometimes will intrude upon a game and sometimes are perfect for a game. So a lot of times when I buy a supplement or I see a supplement that talks about these kinds of things, they serve as a sort of inspiration, and I may or may not use them in a given campaign, um, especially once I talk to the players, right? So. Tomb of Annihilation, in theory, you could go hungry and thirsty and run into, you know, terrible things in the water that churn your stomach. And when I asked the players how they felt about this sort of thing, they were like, yeah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to run out. We don't want to track resources and run out of water or forage for food. OK, there go all those kinds of rules. I didn't need to look at them right? because they just didn't want that in the game. Um, so I, I think it's touchy. I think it, it's it's difficult for probably for wizards to officially devote that space to these kinds of subjects and unofficially for any one designer to hit th- the various table needs you're going to need to hit to really create a great system for those things. I
0: don't know. No, I, I agree. It It depends. And like you said, it depends on the player. It depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. There are situations where I, as a DM, might think this is great. We're going to model this trek across the desert and these rules are going to be perfect. And those same rules that work perfectly for this add drama and add consequences and add narrative. If we're doing it, you know, going from one city to another, just even though you could use, could use the same rules there, they don't add enough to the story or the game to, to use in that situation. So <laughs> it's, it's hard.
1: That may be one reason why skill challenges were so popular in fourth edition, even though they were so obviously imperfect is that they were very customizable to allow you to tell the particular story you wanted to about that trek, or, and it could be any kind of trek, right? The moving through the city, looking for something. Um, it could just capture those kinds of things. Hey, you're moving through the forest and and you're low on food. This skill challenge will include that in some of what we're trying to do. And Mm -hmm. and that was a nice way to hit those narrative notes without needing big systems. You could just use that one system. And even though it might skill challenges weren't, weren't a perfect system, it gave you that framework and it was good enough for what a lot of people wanted to do
0: with it. Yeah. It gave you the framework and it made you as the game master, think about consequences Mm -hmm. before you got into it, rather than while you were in it, then trying to come up with something. So yeah, yeah, that was the framework itself was, was nice to put into the collective consciousness of game masters who might not have thought of situations in that way. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Uh, Majus via our patreon discord for that question let's jump right into news and commentary because we got some news and we got some commentary coming your way starting with fandelver and below the shattered obelisk if you were a digital and physical uh customer you can now access Mm. the shattered obelisk right now i was not i thought i was But I only bought the digital version, so I got on this morning, and I was all ready to dive in and read this, and I realized now I have to wait two weeks. But if you're interested in what's in it and you don't have the uh, early access, you can go out and look at the 20,000 previews commentary that's out there. I'm not going to because I want to read it and digest it without any outside noise, so you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to hear our thoughts on it. But hang in there because there will be thoughts.
1: Um, I have
0: access to it. You. You. <laughs> I'm muting you. That's it. Mute. Okay. But. This is so cool. Yeah, this is so cool. I was, oh, I man. Know.
1: Sean would love this. Too bad he can't see I, it today. Too like bad.
0: Too bad. But you know what I can see, Teus. You know <laughs> what I can't see? Tell me. Demiplane has launched their 5e Nexus as of like two hours ago. It just came out. And what is in this early access that you can get? You could get the uh, Tome of Beast and Tome of Beast 2 from Cobalt Press. You can get the Tal'Dorei Reborn book from Darrington Press. Or you could get the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire from Ghostfire Gaming. Those are the three Companies that are highlighted here in this uh, first day of 5E Nexus and Demiplane. I didn't even know this was happening. I just happened to see an Adam Bradford tweet that said we're live, and I just Jay. I'm waiting for Teos. I'll check out what? <laughs> what? Oh, okay. But how interesting is it that the Tal'Darim Reborn book? Is available both on dummy plane and on DD Beyond yeah. for the same price. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. I mean, good.
1: That's the way it should be. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 what I would say, and D. someone at D might go, like, wait, why is that possible? And to which I'd say stop it. Think about it the other way, which is that either your platform's awesome or it's not. Right. Mm-hmm. So either D Beyond is a fantastic place to read a book and and Use the tools and so on, or it isn't. Uh, people will go to wherever good tools are. They'll also probably go to you because you're official anyway. So look, the the D you're gonna get, you're gonna get the leg up anyway. Um, you have advantage on the check, but um, yeah. but but just focus not on on the competition as as to be you know to give credit where credit is due. Uh, d d usually focuses inwards rather than outwards. And and that's what I would always, I think that's a good call and they should keep doing that, which is don't worry about whether someone else has the content. That's not taking money away from you. It's spreading your brand far and wide to people who may mm-hmm. like may want it in a slightly different way. Um, yeah. So good, I'm glad that's the case. And I hope that mm-hmm. is the case more often. And I'm glad to see Demiplane uh, and that good team uh, doing this. That's cool and very cool that Grim Hall is on there.
0: So there's a link in our show notes to both Adam's uh, talk that went on today, as well as to the 5e Nexus. And they're also, if you sign up for DemiPlane, they're doing giveaways and and you can get books uh, for free to, if you win the, the mm-hmm. promotion and so on. So check that out at DemiPlane.com. You were very interested in the E.N. World article on freelance pay and the survey that they did. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There had been, you know, as we shared on the show not too long ago, someone had done a a survey on pay. But the way the questions were structured made it a little hard to break things down. So E.N. World did their own version of a survey. They have now gathered and shared data submitted by 1,120 anonymous freelancers. And the mean rate they found for and, and interestingly, they asked not about history, but about just I think it was this year. Um, so it was it was really um, focused on what you are earning right now versus at some point in time. It also grouped um, asked you to sort of describe kind of what grouping the, the company that hired you was in rather than name a specific company. Um, so the mean rate for writers was 8.5 8. cents per word, and they had done an earlier survey in 2015, with, which far fewer, uh, it, was, it wasn't even a survey, it was, it was speaking to various companies. Back then, it was about 3 cents a word as a mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big increase. Uh, the 10, 2023 mode is 10 cents per word, uh, which makes sense because that is a pretty common rate that you hear uh, once you're getting good work. And the most common grouping is in the five to six cents per word range. The highest, which was a single occurrence, was 40 cents per word. And uh, I'm proud to say that that was me. (laughs) I got paid really well by a company uh, for a project. And I'm very thankful for that. And I think more people should get paid that rate. Um, And the lowest which, uh, well, there were some people who were unpaid, but the lowest that was paid was under one cent per word, which was not me this year, but it's me, been me in the past. Um, yeah, I, although I didn't accept there. the job, <laughs> but, yeah. but I was offered, uh, I think, 0. 0.02 is what I was offered once. Um, the survey was also, also looked at company size so that you could see that the leader companies like Wizards of the Coast and Paizo had the highest word rates, followed by large and single person companies. Um, medium and small companies paid the lowest, though with a very high variance. And and it's interesting to me that kind of seeing that um you can get into sort of a middle group that that can pay well versus a small group that's anything goes like you you can't you can't figure it out. Um I've also heard recently you know I don't know about Paiso but I've I've heard enough about Wizard rates to know that they're paying very well these days compared to say what it was like back when i did a lot of writing for them and so that's really good to hear um time in industry helped so you could expect or you would see in these survey results a steady increase in word rate from being your first year of writing to say 16 to 20 years of writing interestingly if you work more than 21 years you tended to earn slightly less than if you had worked for 16 to 20 years And I wonder if that sort of folks have just sort of been doing the same thing for the same companies and those companies are kind of taking advantage of you, right? Um, So I I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, 75% of work was work for hire, 11% was licensed and 2% had the rights eventually revert to them. And that may be folks particularly drawn to EN world, which is often used that approach. And then some people just didn't provide answers, but yeah. I thought, I thought that was really fascinating. In general, it's encouraging that the, the trend is upward. Um, you know, It's a good increase from when this last happened. I will say, as I've covered in my Success in RPGs episode on this, it's really important to look at what even 25 cents a word can allow you to do. Like, If you're trying to live in Seattle on 25 cents a word, and you try to think of how many words you must write in a year to pay for the rent, that is daunting. and then you know, and I looked at that at the video. so folks are interested can can look up my success in RPG's video on the subject. Um so we I think we still have a long
0: ways to go for sure. And speaking of pay in the industry, just this morning, Pelgrane Press put out a note saying that they were looking to hire a quote project editor. And so I saw that. I was like, you know, we cover these things on the show. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. An editor, we're seeing more, we're seeing wizards again hire in staff editors, on staff editors rather than freelancers. So I wonder what it looks like for Pelgrane. Pelgrane is a well-known role-playing game publishing company. They have a solid line of products. They have lots of goodwill in the industry. So I clicked on that to see what would they pay a project editor. And then I started reading and I went, whoa. (laughs) And it wasn't a good whoa. Mm So here's what it said. The successful candidate will work with Pelgrane Management on the key books on Pelgrane's growing list of core titles and supplements from conception to delivery. They will be responsible for managing relationships with freelancers. Okay, some editors do that. Printers and colleagues. Printers? Okay. Exploring market opportunities. Huh? And for scheduling, budgeting and quality control of key titles. They will also be involved in art direction and editing. So a good eye for design and excellent attention to detail is essential. I was like, wait a second. This is not an editor. This is a project manager. This is this is a producer, plus an editor, plus an yeah. art art director, director, plus a marketer, plus a social media. Uh, and so I was like, wow, okay. Well, you know, it must be this is going to be – a pretty good paying job. The position for this uh, is an initial six-month contract with the possibility of an extension for the right candidate. The position is for 30 hours a week. I'm like, okay, and we'll be starting immediately on recruitment. Pay will be commiserate with skill and experience, but we anticipate a pay range of between U.S. $20 to $22. Now, I assume they mean $20 to $22,000 with the possibility for a truly phenomenal candidate to earn more the position doesn't include health insurance so if your country doesn't have universal health care you will need to have your own health care provision.
1: And yeah, unless they mean that that's an hourly rate. I yeah even, I have even there is then, a, a PDF you can look at but it does not n- say anything about what it pays.
0: Yeah, yeah th- this is really and you know even know- 20 to 22 dollars an hour for 30 hours a week you're you're not making much.
1: Yeah, and and the this is a ton of work. Um, mm-hmm. but you have to have a really great skill set to do all these different things. I it is it is amazing, and, it, and it's interesting because I mean, Pelgrane today was sharing this and saying, you know, please share this far and wide. Like like it sounds like they feel very proud about it, and I love Pelgrane Press products. I'm a, I'm a fan of their staff. Um, and I do know that they struggle with how to sell things, but that's where sometimes the answer isn't pay people very little so you can keep doing what you're doing. You know, sometimes the answer is go back and look at what you do so you can find a different way to do it and look around at the rest of the industry because there are companies out there that for this kind of job are paying a substantial salary. Right hundred thousand dollars a year and more for this kind of work, and so you know seventy five up easily and, and 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 for fewer activities, right not because this is so far ranging and and it's not just wizards doing that and and so this is it is troubling it's 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 frustrating to see this um, yeah. it's too much work yeah. too little pay. Yeah. And and Pellgrin Press is amazing. I mean, I'd love to work with Pellgrin Press, but this is the kind of job uh, that you look at and you think, I don't even know. where, where we, What would you be doing in a given week? It would drive you mad.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and it's 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 I mean, the, the pay is one thing, assuming that it's covering all of those things, but it's just it's asking for failure. It's asking for failure, mm-hmm. and i I feel like the I feel like the one thing is it's only thirty hours a week, but to do all of those things, you're going to need more than thirty hours a week yeah. to be successful. At even at even creating a small product,
1: I don't know how it can uh, be thirty hours a week because. Are you mean are you helping with like odd jobs in all of these categories based on what they don't have the ability to cover like it, it's just strange yeah. it's really strange
0: yeah and and i'm not saying this to like get down on pelgrin because like you right. said it's a company i've worked with and for and and i like their products and i like their teams and it's it's just it's odd that if this is what they need to pay in order to keep themselves going, that's bad news for the industry. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, so, and I mean,
1: again, I look at that. I, you know, I do see companies out there that struggle with, they, they'll say, you know, I can't pay anybody a decent rate. And then I say, well, I don't think you're making products. You're making products in, in the way people did two decades ago. a decade ago not the way that some companies are making products today and you should look at what the best companies are doing and emulate that and learn from that because there are ways to pay better salaries um you may not get to make all the products you want to make you know but but that's it's just like gaming stores right used to be a a business that would be like i just want to sit around in a building that has all of these cool things and sell and then they'd go out of business because well you need to do more than that to be, a, a, and especially in these days, to have a successful RPG store, you, you've got to really be a smart business person to do it. And you have to look at what successful gaming stores do and emulate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that and see. We've already had people in our Discord saying hey did you see this i can't wait to hear what taos and john have to say about this i was like it's already in the show notes and we've already have some comments so Mm -hmm. i'll keep an eye on that uh there was an interesting blog called the pastel dungeon that had a post about choices information and meaning that explored the different types of choices and what they mean for play and players in role-playing games and Teos, you were the one that delved into this. So I'm mm. going to set back and listen to your thoughts.
1: It was a really nice blog that talked about how it breaks down the types of choices that happen during play in fantasy RPGs of all kinds and how, you know, there are all these choices, but only some of them really matter. And looking at what kind of choices you're offering and what they mean can be really helpful to them structuring those kinds of situations in games. So you know, the order in which you speak with two NPCs may have no impact. So you can choose whether to speak to, you know, the baker or the candlestick maker first, but it doesn't matter. It's just sort of a silly choice, an unimportant choice. Um, A false choice could be one where you think it matters, but it actually doesn't, right? Whether I go left or right on the trail, but either way I go, I face the ogre. Well, seems like I made a choice, but if I go and double back, the DM will have to admit that there's nothing there in that other way, right? Um, And if there's no information to go on, right? So I have a a left and a right fork, but no information to go by, then I have an arbitrary choice. It feels like a choice, but I'm not really making a choice other than just randomly. But now if I provide things on the left and things on the right, and those things give some sort of indication, some sort of hint, now I've got a real choice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. A non-choice when you have options, but one is obviously far better. So a choice in the road and one says, you know, shortcut to the castle, and the other one says, you know, terrible, dangerous swamp from which no one ever emerges. You probably just want the shortcut, you know. And so then it's not really a choice either. Um a choice is informed if they can predict the result of each option. A choice is meaningful if options have tangible measures and are me- tangible and measurable consequences. So I liked really how this broke it down, and, and we've got a link in our show notes to the pastel in the specific. Uh, article and yeah I, I
0: really enjoyed that read that was great awesome and last but not least we have a couple creator spotlights the first being jeff stevens of jeff stevens publishing who has a kickstarter going right now called weapons of legend this is a 5e supplement containing 80 magical weapons to add to your game 40 of these weapons have progression rules allowing a character to acquire those weapons early in their adventuring career. And then as they progress, their weapon progresses as well. They can complete tasks, finish quests, and gain experience. And their weapon evolves along with them. And there are also 40 traditional magical weapons which do not progress. Second creator spotlight is JVC Perry, who has a Kickstarter going for an adventure called the folk from harrowthorpe this is a pulp horror adventure for fifth edition filled with mystery and the uncanny will you uncover the secret of harrowthorpe well if you buy it and play it you just might this is a tier one adventure which will take the characters from levels three to four and as with the other things that uh jvc perry has done via kickstarter it looks like it's got pretty good production value good art good maps and so on so both of those are available on kickstarter right now
1: yeah those are two great creators and i just might have a weapon of legend in that jeff stevens kickstarter there you go i'm not going to spoil it
0: though yeah
1: does it progress I mean, I I don't know that I can say, so I'm not going to say anything uh, about whether it has
0: flumps involved or not. I should have known. Have to mute you again, but now we are going to unmute Teos and get to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons, and that topic is DMG Part Three of Chapter Eight: Running the Game. So why are we doing this, Teos? Well. We've had all of this talk about what's, it, what, where, where can we find stuff about foraging, and where can we find stuff about gambling, and well, this is the running the game section, so this is where things like that maybe could be or should be. Parts one and two we've already covered, and now I think we're going to finish today. I think we can do it. We are going to finish part, uh, chapter eight with part three, talking about combat and chases and siege equipment and more and more and more. So let's get right into it with combat. The first thing we talk about here is tracking initiative. Uh, What did you think of this section?
1: It felt to me a little bit dated. Like this was uh, something that I would have expected to have read in maybe even a fourth edition book or third, because it felt like this is what people would talk about in third edition as being new. Like, ooh, you know, you can have a piece of paper with the order on it or you can have a visible list that's uh you know like on a magnets that you move around or wet erase marking things that you do or you could have index cards i'm like these are all things we did in third edition um and and they didn't mention things that are like uh initiative cards that they give out with the numbers that even are in their own kits now weren't at the start of you know they weren't out there in 2014 but they've added to the Dungeon Masters, uh, what's it called, the Wilderness Kit and the the Dungeon Kit um, have those. Or table tents with initiative on them, right? Or, or table tents with initiative on them that you put along the top of your DM screen. So all of this, I thought, was sort of, it, it felt a little, it's fine, it's a little dated. They also don't talk about sort of, uh, they, they hint at it a bit, but they don't really say, like, what is it you're trying to do with initiative? And what you're trying to do with initiative is speed play up. And the reason a lot of these different technologies have come in over time is because what you're trying to do is to let players know tactics without slowing things down to ask you, you know, how long till the monster goes, right? Or does Sue go before I go this turn? You know, did she just go? I can't remember. Um, All those kinds of questions, the more that it's clear to someone the better that they can prepare for their turn, they can be um, uh, aware of all the tactics involved, right? I'll do this so you can close the door. That'll be before the monster acts, right? All of that, you want that to be available. And, and it, could, it could have done a better job of talking through that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I I wasn't upset with what was there because for new DMs, you just need to know, hey, is there an easy way to, to do it? And But yeah, what needed to be said, I think, was And it it was mentioned very briefly, you know, which was if Mm -hmm. you hide initiative, you could surprise people. It can be fun, but you're going to then have to wake someone up when it's their turn when otherwise they would know. Mm -hmm. The, The one thing that I've seen lots of 5e players or DMs do is play a different game and see this new unique initiative system for this other game and say oh I'm going to use mm-hmm. that in my game because it was so fun to have that popcorn initiative mm-hmm. thing where it was you know and then um and then it just doesn't work for 5E because 5E is a game that relies on the same order from round to round to round mm-hmm. uh so it's it's might be important to just mention that that's uh, true yeah Next, we get to tracking monster hit points. And, you know, we go from, we didn't really get a lot of detail from some of the things earlier in the chapter or even earlier in the book. And then tracking monster hit points goes into great detail. Uh, Like, okay, you have three ogres. How do you differentiate between those three ogres while you're keeping their hit points? Uh, If you have minis, use different minis. If you have, if you're doing theater of the mind, describe each one, one with the scar, one with the broken club and the other one, you know, wearing a pelt of a lion. And that's how you differentiate between the three, which is fine. it's, it's, it, it's good advice. It just, it's like, where, wow, where did that detail come from? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's good. Um, I you mean, know, again, this is stuff that really was used a lot in third edition and, and, you know, you, you could see that if, if if they thought about fourth edition, they might say, you know, like, when you have a condition, add a, a visible indicator to it, right? Uh, whether yep. it's to the initiative tent or to the miniature. Um, and and they chose not to do that, which I thought was interesting. Um, and th- th- they have some nice references here. Like, you know, people, players will often ask how hurt a monster looks. Don't feel as though you have to reveal exact hit points, but, you know, maybe it makes sense to talk about the visible wounds and how beat down they are. I think that's great. That's totally on point. Um, it made me think that, boy, I wish they'd talked about how to answer questions about what the monster does, which is something that came up a mm. lot, especially at the beginning of 5th edition, where because of 4th yeah. edition, people wanted to make knowledge checks to know mm. that this thing is invulnerable to something or resist something or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and that's a huge question. in Even with the most veteran game masters everyone has a different opinion on how it works and even people's opinions will change as they move from one group to another where they think they have the perfect system and it was the perfect system for the questions and the play style of their group then you go over to this group and the same system that you thought worked well just completely breaks down with this group of players who will make 72 knowledge checks if you let them to get every last detail about a monster, even before they want to roll initiative. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a strange topic that could have its own chapter of a book, maybe. Uh, But it, it is important to, to think about and since the game doesn't exactly specify how it should play according to the designers.
1: Yeah and, and you know and then this next section about using and tracking conditions is interesting because again they don't talk about the miniature angle or anything like that or a physical they do or they don't really think about the the opposition side of it. They do have some nice advice for the players um that you can say like okay you know you can give the players a card that states what the condition is that way they remember because it's on top of their character sheet that they've that they've got this this condition to overcome. Um, but they don't talk about how to inf- and, and, and that on the monster side, you could have a, a card that you, you know, mark on, but it doesn't say how you'd, you'd let the players know that and remind them of that. And that that's an important interplay to consider. And it may be that you go like, no, I'm fine. I don't need to do that. Or I'll remember, or it's not a big enough factor that I care. That's fine if you feel that way. But for those who want to think through this, it's good to give some options of how to, to illustrate that um and how important it can be because it really is helpful to say to players okay you're going to attack one of the orcs are you attacking the one that is prone Mm -hmm. you know and just even and and to talk through things like what to reveal right like it you might think as a dm like well i don't want to tell the ranged uh person attacking making range attack that they are attacking a prone target they'll find out and they'll deal with it but that's less fun right Mm -hmm. more fun is to say now that one's prone do you want to attack it even though you'll be at disadvantage because you're using a ranged weapon no no i'd rather attack the one okay great you know that's actually more fun and play and those kinds of uh, that kind of advice can be really good in this section
0: yeah and it's funny because those of us who live through fourth edition know that conditions were a huge part Mm -hmm. of that game and tools were made specifically for little paper clips or little rings or people would use pop cap the uh-huh. little stuff that comes off the pop cap and hangs there of all different band. colors, hair bands, b- uh, rubber bands. But even then there were so many conditions that every mini on the board looked like a Christmas tree by the time it was <laughs> done. Cause it would have seven rings on it. And then you'd say, Oh, well, it is no longer stunned. So take off the green. Yeah. Oh, but it still has six conditions. It was uh yeah. It was a conditionful addition, uh, to say the least. But you know, we, we who have learned that now can take that knowledge forward and say, with fewer conditions, maybe that's something that you could try uh, in your home games. Yeah. Then we get to monsters and critical hits. How to do that? The the book has told us before to use the average damage. Uh, to make the game go more quickly, but how do you then do critical hits? Well, they say just use the average damage, but roll the dice that you would have rolled for the attack and add it to it, which is a quick and simple way to uh, deal with with those uh, questions. What did you think of the improvising damage section
1: uh, you know it, it's neat. Um, I, I generally like it. it. I find it a little duplicative with the work that the trap damage did. It's almost like the trap section could just refer to like choose one table, put it here and have the traps point to this maybe um, as a general here's what fifth edition damage looks like whenever you're you're you know dealing with something that isn't a monster. but it's nice it's a table that gives you damage dice all d10s interestingly and the number of them is then tied to different subjects. Like, being submerged in lava, being hit by a crashing flying fortress is 18d10. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and, uh, you know, hit by falling rubble in a collapsing tunnel is 4d10. Uh, I think that's fine. I know that fifth edition is an edition that wants to sort of say, here's what reality is, right? So stumbling into a vat of acid is 4d10. Okay, great. You know, but the reality of, if you look at even Wizard's official adventures, because these numbers vary all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they often are tiered, surprise, to the level of the characters, right? So if you fall into the fire pit, and this is a level one adventure, it'll do like D6 damage. But if you stumble into a fire pit, and you're fifth level, it may do this 2D10 or even more. Um, Because that's the way authors do things without even really thinking about it, right? The damage ends up being what it should be. So we do get this next table, which is damage, severity, and level. And here it has the character level, and it talks about, is this supposed to be a setback, dangerous, or deadly? And it's a really interesting range, because the deadly level, it is deadly, right? Like first they or don't, fourth they're level. They're not messing around. 4d10, <laughs> right? Or 24d10 for 17th to 20th. I mean, you know, if you roll a maximum of 240 hit points worth of damage, or even the 120 that's in the middle, that's a uh, that's a lot. That is a lot. So <laughs> yeah, um, I do actually like the table a lot. It's surprisingly, you know, it works actually pretty well. Um, though those deadly spikes can be quite shocking to players. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then after that, we get the adjudicating areas of effect. So if you're not using a map, but someone casts a line spell that's 60 feet long or a cone that's 30 feet, uh, a 30-foot cone, how do you figure out how many creatures get caught in that? And they suggest this chart called targets and area of effect where you take the size of the cone or the cube or the radius of the cylinder or sphere or the length of the line and divide it by a certain number round up. And that's the number of creatures that a character or a monster can catch within that area. And it's, I'm glad it's there, but I would never use it Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, because I just, I would rather narrate it and give the give the caster a choice of you know make them think it through and narratively say you can get four and you don't get any of your party you can get six but you're also gonna get yeah. your rogue and your fighter which do you want to do and that sort of adds a little bit of tact not not even tactical but narrative uh, mm-hmm. emphasis to to the game. Uh, and they don't really mention that here, which I wish they would have. But uh, other than that, I think the chart is, sort of makes sense and is fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, something that I, that I try to be cognizant of is that I've, I've met uh, DMs and players who really cannot sort of store spatial information in their brains, right? Because the the way that I look at it, and it may be the way you look at it, is in general when when someone says, you know, hey, how many orcs can I hit with my burning hands? I see the three-dimensional layout of things, yeah. and I go, well, you could probably get these two, and and you know, pretty easily. But these three, if you did this, because that's where this other character is, right? You'd have to get your your ally. Um, but I think that there are those people who can't, they do not store that information in their heads in that way, and so that's where maybe this mathematical thing would really work well for them. Um, and and and. And to this sort of abstract description space, you know, you could add some 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 wording to that that you know some people do not process things spatially. So when you're doing theater of mind, um, it's important to keep that in mind. Um, and and that if you do as a DM, then giving little cues as you talk about things really is helpful, right? The orc charges at you, or the orc charges at you from the left side where they, you know. Uh, we're hiding behind the planter, right like the, that you're giving little cues of what the room is like as you're talking can be really helpful to players to remind them um you know the the goblin leaves the chest oh right there's a chest there it then comes to attack mm. you right okay, that kind of thing is very helpful uh and and we could say maybe this is a point to say, hey, look, they don 't really talk about theater of the mind here other than this sort of how to abstract area of effects and and that's a fascinating decision that they didn't choose even though it's not a super miniatures heavy system they don't choose to really talk specifically about how to run theater mind
0: yep uh, and then we have a handling mobs section where it says if you have a lot of monsters rather than having each one attack you use a little chart to see what they would need to roll to hit a character. And then you just figure out how many of them within the mob actually would hit without rolling dice, which is fine. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's another mathematical thing, but then the example they give is sort of weird to me because it's, it's eight works, you know, surrounding someone. And I'm like, how hard is it to roll for eight orcs? Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, okay. 16. Yeah, Okay. Now, now we're getting up there, but, but eight, i think i could handle that Mm -hmm. and the the one thing i love to do is if i have a big mob like that and they're all there around something is i will just have half the number attack the other half are helping a someone so you just roll with advantage advantage, for the ones and Mm -hmm. then you have a better chance of hitting it makes it a little more interesting and you're not wasting all those rolls uh
1: yeah i mean it's somewhat like rolling eight dice anyway though You're willing two at a time. Yeah, it's fine. but yeah, I mean, it's there are a lot of folks who create mob systems, and every time I've used them, my players will say, "Yeah, that was fun. Let's not do it again." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think that's the thing that I I would look at adding advice wise to this is just that there's some it's fun to spice up games with things like you know. 100 orcs 50 orcs right like that can be fun but it's maybe good to gauge stop and think about how it works because none of these systems work perfectly um and so it's mm-hmm. it's more thinking through what you're going to like for a particular situation even and modifying your mm-hmm. approaches over time to fit the scenario and just being aware of that
0: Yep. so i want to like speed through these other things because mm-hmm. some of them are sort of self-explanatory mm-hmm. don't Don't mean much. I know that you have written chases and chases Mm -hmm. that were actually pretty fun. So what did you think of the chases section?
1: Um, The chase system is interesting in that it has a whole way that essentially you're going to move. And then you're going to have a number of times in a round that you can move or a number of times in this situation, in this scene, that you're going to get to be able to dash. And if you hit that maximum you are now going to be uh, making checks to see whether you get exhaustion. So you can dash a number of times equals the three plus your con mod after that DC 10 con or exhaustion. And you can instead use your action not to dash, but attacks or spells. And that somewhat becomes part of the problem is that I think chases as a rule system doesn't quite know whether it's trying to become a metagame or trying to remain the game. And they're trying to split the difference and put a leg on each side by doing this i can't say that i fault the design i might have ended up right there too you know um but there are a number of situations i think of folks who ran water dragon heist a lot of times are sort of having their first experience with this and we're going it wasn't really satisfying or the player just cast hold person and that was the end of that but they're supposed to get away actually and so there i would have liked some tips about thinking through what it is that your chase is accomplishing. The best chases, the chases that really I like are the ones that lean heavily into part of the rules called chase complications. And that's the idea that when you're going through this chase, you are gonna roll on your turn a D20 and on a one to 10 a complication takes place and there's a table of these complications. And you're encouraged to make your own. There are a couple of examples there and that is where it really gets awesome especially when it's not actually combat-oriented, right? So like, if you have to catch a kid that you know you don't wanna attack and take down, um, or if you're competing against each other, and so for a great example is the uh, Eberron adventure that you can find on the DMs Guild called EB07, Song of the Sky. In that adventure, the same writers that created um, uh, Witchlight worked on this to simulate a competition where you're on levitating soar sleds, so like little disks, kind of tensors floating disks, but you can fly on it. And you are soaring around a university competing with each other All the players are. And so you're soaring and doing things and then stuff happens, like a sudden flock of birds across your path and you make checks to see how it goes. And those complications are what makes this a really fun story. And so I'd, I'd start with something like looking at that adventure to think through your chases and build off of that rather than just using these dry rules, which can fall apart when your target can be held or anything like that. Mm
0: -hmm. And with siege equipment, I feel like it sort of has the same problem. Siege equipment is the next one. So we Mm -hmm. hear about ballistas and cannons and suspended cauldrons and rams and siege towers and trebuchets and so on. And they, just like with chases, there seems to be this desire to have this separate metagame. But in the long run, the characters and the players want to do what's on their sheet and want to do what they've been trained to do by mm-hmm. the game, which is not attack a tower, which is not attack a keep. It's to attack the people. Yeah. And so when you're in a chase, if the chase is you're chasing something and trying to stop it, like what you described was more of a race. Mm hmm. Uh, but many times when we do a chase scene, it's, well, we're trying to catch someone to hurt them, or we're trying to stay ahead of someone so they don't hurt us. And it's, sieges are the same sort of thing to me. It's like, well, we we could attack the ship, or we could do, you know, we could use our, uh, whatever it was, a trebuchet and do 8d10 damage to the captain. <laughs> and yeah. we're probably better off doing that. Yeah. So it's the 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 scale of what the rules expect is different, but it's still couched in terms that is is so stayed to the players that they just think in those smaller kill the enemy terms.
1: Yeah, I think that siege weapons probably came about again this fifth edition idea of reality that a trebuchet is eight d10 um and that a ship has you know this much this many hit points and you must do x or it doesn't deal over it what that really means is a battle against a ship takes forever Mm -hmm. and so players aren't going to do that they're either going to board or they're going to use those weapons to take out the most important person on the ship and be done with it because dealing 44 damage to that target could be really good in a lot of levels of play and and Spelljammer suffers from this, and, and Spelljammer could have cleaned this up and addressed it, but it didn't. And Spelljammer, if you look at the recommendations for what a starting encounter distance might be, I mean, that can be many rounds of absolute useless boredom, unless everybody targets everybody. And, and you don't want that because, I mean, imagine that they were targeting the, the player, that is sitting on the spell jammer and you're low level and you're taking this 8 D 10 damage to a player character from several weapons that are on the ship. That's not funny there, right? So it just it's a problem where the game's trying to be so accurate to itself that then this system just doesn't jive with the play. And what I would have loved to have seen is saying things like, here's what's typical, right? A trebuchet is general 8 D 10, but hey. There's no manufacturer making these things for the entire, you know, all campaign worlds. Vary them for your scenario. And think through what it is that you're trying to do with these ship weapons and what the, what the situation is. Make your own ship weapons that are cool, right? And do different things like, and do things to engage the players in these types of situations. So I've done things like um, uh, that uh, the enemy fires at you what lo- what looks like to be you know a, a catapult a uh, bunch of of rocks but the rocks not only did they do some damage to the ship which is fine that's not the point the point is these rocks turn out to be a bunch of skeletons that reassemble once they hit the ship so it's like a bone catapult spray and then they assemble and now fight people and now that's kind of fun and engaging while you still can have the ship battle or things like that right and and so that's where siege weapons i think end up really harming the game because they create this weird stated rule set that doesn't apply to a lot of different levels of play, even though you wish it did.
0: I want to cover diseases, poisons, and madness all as one thing. Mm -hmm. Because for me, it comes down to sort of what we talked about when we answered that question originally, which was, you know, how do you do these other things (laughs) uh, and, and make it fun? And the, the, the answer is often not well, yeah. uh, because, you know, d is a game about removing hit points from the enemy before the enemy removes hit points from you. So to add these diseases, poison, madness, it's sort of a system that's tacked on that is either way too powerful or yeah. totally inconsequential. There's rarely anything fun or interesting about it in terms of gameplay. Unless you tailor it specifically to the situation that your players are in. Then it can become fun. Okay, you have this disease and you need to get the cure for it, which you know is in this place over here. And you have four days to get there. Mm -hmm. And after five days, the person is deteriorating along the way. Okay, that, that can be made fun. But if it's just a five days, but a cure disease from a third level cleric which after your fifth level you know everybody a third level spell which everybody has then it's it, it sort of doesn't yeah. work over the length and breadth of the entire game and yeah. it, for me it's the same yeah. thing with poison and the same thing with madness it right. it doesn't just doesn't fit
1: and, and madness has a number of problems in today's game that 2014 yeah. uh, folks designers of all companies not just wizards were not really thinking through um, and I think that the, the, you can sidestep a lot of these problems if you aren't trying to recreate the world and, and reality as poisons and madness and diseases are trying to do, and you look at the application and say, hey, in a situation where you can't think clearly, how can you model that? And why are you modeling it? Why is it fun? Why is it interesting? Why is it engaging to be poisoned, to be unable to think clearly uh, in some way? Right. How do we make that interesting and fun? How can we make it interesting and fun to be diseased? Um, what is it that. What is that key thing that's that's engaging you in the game? And, and they don't seem to answer that here. And then the, the system and the method is just so. Uh, again, it's, it's so fixed on a particular view of how things should work that it, it isn't fun. I mean, nobody wants to have their character be completely out of control for 20 minutes or longer. Because we don't even know what the gameplay application is. Am I am I just hand-waving it and traveling a day or am I in combat for the next however long? Like, you know, those are such different applications that it just doesn't work as a system of trying to create the truth of the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And last but not least, we hear about experience points and how to handle them, why to use them, why not to. Uh yeah, this is an interesting this is an interesting discussion because I think most of the people are at least most of the people that designed fifth edition originally don't use XP and haven't for forever because of all the problems that come with experience points in terms of creating games, in terms of being a DM and planning a campaign. Uh, But they still need to put this in there (laughs) to tell people how it used to be or how some people like to play maybe i don't know and i think that's
1: yeah i think they do a disservice they're trying to do that but i think they do a disservice even to that goal um they should really say i mean the reality is some people love xp and we see this on our patreon discord where a number of people will talk about how much they love xp you and i don't that's fine um people do some DMs do, some players do. A lot of my players would prefer that I use XP. I, I don't want the micromanaging. So I just say, sorry, folks, you know, you're not getting that little tickle of fun from me that says you're about to level. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but understanding those differences a little better than what they say here, and then why they suggest these different systems. So they talk about, you know, absent characters and non-combat challenges. And then they talk about like, hey, you can measure the XP, you know, based on the monster rules and so on. But you can also do milestones, where completing a goal grants XP. And they do that in a confusing enough way that a lot of folks will think that milestones is is the idea of just leveling with mm-hmm. um, what's called really story-based advancement, which they also talk mm-hmm. about here, or session-based, right? You could advance every session, or you could advance based on the story itself. Wait, we, we've cleaned out the temple, can be the story point. It can also be a milestone, but the milestone is really more of a fourth edition view of saying, you know, you are hired by the lord of the castle. She tells you to go clear out the cult. When you do that, you almost cash it in, right? Video game style and get this bundle of XP versus, and it's an XP value versus level advancement without xp where you say when you've cleared out the cultists you're second level i'm not tracking numbers it's just happened. right and yeah. and i think it would be nice if it tried to be a little less neutral about it and more say here's why this system's great here's its shortcomings and then explain that well there's no perfect system for all people
0: you choose the one you like and go with that mm-hmm. yep agreed <laughs> hey we made it we made it through chapter nine Or Chapter 8. Now we can go on to Chapter 9, the Dungeon Master's Workshop, where we can get our hands dirty with building things based on Wizards of the Coast telling us how to build. So we'll see if their blueprints pass muster. Well, Teos, I know that you're exhausted, so I want to thank you for hanging in there and uh, doing such a fine job.
1: I'm what were you talking? I was just uh, sitting here thinking about the the Duke football victory over Clemson. But uh, no, I'm I'm, Uh, I'm kidding.
0: Um, I was going to mention that. I
1: had to find a way to bring it up. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, thank you uh, for for being here. And thank you to all our listeners out there for hanging in there while we yak on. I did
1: want to say uh, thank you to several folks who came up uh, at PAX. I think the funniest was you looked like Teos, but then I heard you speak and I was like, oh, that's the Teos I hear every week. (laughs) That really Mm -hmm. made me uh, feel quite honored that my voice could be recognized by someone. was amazing. And there was a father son duo who came up and and talked about listening to the show. And and the kid just looking at his dad and just, matter of fact, going, yeah, I really like that show. I mean, really warmed my heart. So thank you, everybody who listens. And to those folks who sometimes get the opportunity to say say that to us and, and in person it really means a lot to us thank you
0: it really does so thank you and thank you to our patrons who support us thank you master of dungeon supporters we do appreciate your uh your support thank you to our master of realm supporters they get a shout out in our show notes but the masters of the multiverse well they get this they get graham ward james walton joe tyler krishna simose Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo, at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Post-Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Mali, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Go Lions, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, The Mighty Jerd, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckle, Darren Chandler, DM Chad, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you all for being supporters. And you, yes, you, could become a patron of our show by going to patreon.com slash DND we do appreciate that and you get access to the discord server where a lot of these great discussions are happening just like they do on the show only with a lot more smart people. If you get the chance, you can also review us on Apple podcast or subscribe to us via YouTube. Teos, where can people find you, man? Ooh, well, no
1: longer at PAX. You can find me at alphastream.org. Uh, I, well, hopefully I've come up for air and I think I can now uh, provide some something fun will come
0: up this next week. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What about you? Sean? And I am
0: on I am on Twitter. I am on Blue Sky now. I am on tabletop uh, social via Mastodon, Uh, elsewhere, Facebook, uh, running around my town screaming. Sometimes we've talked haven't been about that. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> And of course, on our Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos, we've made it through learning how to run D&D at the table. What are we gonna do now?
1: Oh, well, I'm just gonna go hang out and uh, look at my uh, awesome issue
0: here, my here, my Fandalburn uh, mm-hmm. below
1: the shattered obelisk. Yeah. Wow, this is
0: uh-huh. great. This
1: is so good. Yeah. Uh,
0: so yeah, good. yeah. And I am going to run around town screaming.